From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 354. Today's show is brought to you by Memberful, Pingdom, and Public Sector Future from Microsoft. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. From my garage, I'm Jason Snell. Hi, Mike Hurley. Hi. I have a hashtag Snell question for you from Arjun. What's, what's it called? Snell Talk? Yeah, I'm changing it up today. It's a hashtag okay. Snell Talk from okay. Arjun. Okay. Who asks, when walking outside in the rain, where do you keep your iPhone? Trouser pocket, inside your coat, underneath an iPhone-sized umbrella? What do you do? Well, this has got to be for you and not me because it doesn't rain in California anymore. We don't have that anymore. I w- in fact, this question came in and I thought, oh, man, imagine that it rained. Okay. When it's raining, if I'm outside, it so seldom rains, I would. I just put it in my pocket. I mean, I just put it in my pocket. And, and modern iPhones are all kind of waterproof-ish anyway, and it's in my pocket. And so, yeah, yeah. it's in my pocket. That's I it. I feel like the two of us don't... Uh... Don't really worry about that because we are both professed take the phone in the shower people, right? I feel like mm-hmm. at that point, that's way more water than any rainfall would yeah. uh, put on the phone. Yeah, the problem taking the phone in the shower is that the uh, touchscreen uh, stops working properly. But mm-hmm. if all you're doing is using it as a speaker because you are you don't have your speaker or your speaker has a dead battery or something, then it doesn't matter. The so biggest yeah, in, issue in the rain, is it doesn't worry me. A water drop gets into the speaker because then it sounds like your phone's on the water. It doesn't happen very often, but it happens just mm. enough that it can be frustrating. Uh, as a place where there is rain, I mean, I'm more concerned about keeping myself dry than I am the phone. So, like, I yes. will have an umbrella, right? So then the phone benefits from my right. umbrellaness. Or if you got a raincoat, then the, the if it, if it's long enough to go over the over your pocket, then your your um, your phone is protected in the pocket. Even bed. with a raincoat, I will always want to have an umbrella. I don't like getting the water on me, even if I have a coat. Mm, interesting. Because the raincoat doesn't protect your trousers mm. or your shoes or any of that. No, it doesn't. It's true. I will take an umbrella, but not as often. I think, maybe I think the difference is that when I'm out, if I'm like walking the dog or something mm-hmm. like that, I don't bring an umbrella. But uh, And that's mostly, if I'm out in the rain, it used to be I had like to go to work and I had to commute and I had to go places in the rain. Yeah. But, you know, now I don't have to go places in the rain. Plus there's no rain. Uh, but yes, when, if I was walking to the bus stop or something like that, I would have a raincoat on and I would have an umbrella. It's true. It's true. But my phone would still just be in my pocket. So uh, we actually have an action-packed show today, so I'm probably going to end this rain discussion here. If you would like to help us open an episode of Upgrade, just send out a tweet with the hashtag SnowTalk and yours may be included in the future. WWDC draft next week. I can't believe we actually know when a draft is going to happen, but we know. It's hard to believe that WWDC is in two weeks and our draft is next week. And it is hard to believe because we've been so, it's been a year basically, to have enough notice that we can uh, do a draft without it being an emergency draft. And we can plan it and we can do it with a full week to go. So so next week, the problem now, Mike, is that we're going to have to imagine all the possibilities Mm -hmm. for operating system revisions. This and is it's the one hardest. of the harder drafts to yeah. do, yeah. It is the hardest is. because, you know, even if we go on the rumors, which we will, there's always stuff in the software which is going to be a surprise. Yep. I would mm-hmm. say, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I'm, I'm tempting fate here, but I'm surprised about the lack of information or leaks that have come out leading up to this point. You know, being so close... That's okay. Mark Gurman will have a story on like Thursday that will reveal everything and ruin uh, many of our draft picks. So that, there's that to look forward to. 
But we have to come up with a whole set of stuff for ourselves, which me and Jason are working on over the next week. You already created the thing. So uh, a bunch of Upgradians have sent me in a note about something called eARC, Jason. This is something uh-huh. new for the Apple TV. So yes. with Apple TV and eARC, if you have all of the right gear, so if you have HomePods and a TV that supports eARC, you can now have your HomePods operate as the audio output for anything connected to your television. So if you had a PlayStation, an Xbox, or any of, like maybe you had something audio related, you go into the TV, and then it will be able to stream that out to your HomePods. Now, yeah. this is only the original HomePod, not the HomePod Mini. Uh, which is funny to me. Uh, right. I have I have gotten this set up and I've been playing around with it. Um, I haven't really had a ton of experience with it yet because I only got it set up yesterday. So I'll say more about it on the future. In the future, I'm also going to be talking about. We don't have time for it in this episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Apple TV Unconnected this week. So if you want to hear about my thoughts about the Apple TV and the remote, I'll be talking mm. about the Connected. But this eARC thing is intriguing because it is a new feature for a product that no longer exists which is the whole right. part which well, is I mean, hilarious. The, the argument and something that you've mentioned before is if you if you really like the idea of using a pair of home pods as your speakers for apple mm-hmm. tv the problem is if you have another device you can't do this and now with eARC you can do it you can you can route everything into yep. the tv and then the tv returns down the hdmi cable returns to the apple tv the audio signal which then it sends out it's kind of wild like you so if you i was using my playstation i still use the apple tv remote to turn the volume up or down but i don't get any indication on screen about the volume level Mm -hmm. because it's they don't work together like that it's really intriguing the thing that also intrigues me about this is they label it as a beta feature so look if you wanted any kind of indication that apple's not out of this game of home theater stuff this is it. Like, I genuinely think that this is a feature which all but confirms that they're working on something to yeah. replace the HomePod. I I agree. I feel like, look, it's possible that this is just a last vestige of work on the old HomePod, assuming it was going to be a hit. But it feels to me more like this is yet another clue that Apple has a new home strategy that has a bunch of different pieces. And one of them has something to do with a home theater kind of thing, whether it's a new big HomePod or revision to HomePod mini or a soundbar that runs some version of tvOS. Like there are lots of options here, but the idea that you might have, um, you know, my, my wild idea about an Apple TV soundbar like when you add eARC to the Apple TV, it's like you are almost completely there now, <laughs> right? Like, it's really interesting. So something's going on, I think. And, and although it is possible that this is all just the vestiges of a, a strategy that uh, basically they've gone in a new direction now and killed the HomePod, it, I don't know. I, I think it's more likely that there's something else going on in the background. We'd like to thank everybody that has enjoyed and sent us in uh, comments about the membership bonus special that we put out last Friday. I also want to thank everyone who signed up for Upgrade Plus to get it. If you haven't yet and you want to enjoy our RPG special, if you go to getupgradeplus.com, you can sign up. 
And not only will you get the RPG special with myself and Jason and Gray and Tony Sandalara, our wonderful Game Master, you'll also get access to our Upgrade Plus feed, which includes longer episodes of Upgrade every single week with no ads. This is a great deal. Go to getupgradeplus.com and thank you to everybody that has. Yeah. So Apple released a press release last week about some new accessibility features that they've added to various pieces of the OS and their support system and stuff. I just want to go through some of these really quickly, and then there's one that I want to touch on a little bit more. So the first is Sign Time, which is just a fantastic name, mm-hmm. which is Apple Care support via sign language in a variety of different territories and languages. Sign Time is just it's just so good. Um, iPad OS is going to be supporting eye tracking via third-party devices. Uh, there will be enhancements to voiceover to help describe what's happening in images. So you could use voiceover and it can tell you, like, in this image, this person's doing this. Like, it can describe what people are doing. There's uh, support for new bi-directional hearing aids, hearing aids that have microphones in them so people could take calls and stuff. They're adding background sounds, like white noise type stuff, to the to the OS. By the way, these OS enhancements, these are coming, quote, later in the year. They're clearly iOS 15 things. The big mm-hmm. one, though, is assistive touch for the Apple Watch. So in our show notes is a link to Apple's press release. You have to go to watch this video. It's amazing. So if you turn on this feature, you will be able to, with a few different uh, physical interactions with your hands, to operate the UI. So the two main ones are clenching. So you clench your fist or pinch your fingers together. If you clench your fist twice it will like enable this voiceover mode and then you can use pinching your fingers and clenching to scroll through UI buttons and press yeah. them. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's uh it's really impressive. It's it's like assistive touch on the phone except it's using um you know gestures, very broad gestures uh on to drive the Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty wild uh demo and there's a, like it's like how does it do it and i think the answer is it's got some very interesting clever training about the motions that the apple watch senses yep. that it's interpreting but uh it's it's pretty pretty remarkable for somebody who basically the idea here is if you're unable to manipulate the little touch screen on the apple watch because you can't make those movements or gestures you can now use these larger hand gestures essentially to Mm -hmm. do the same thing but again this is one of those features that like this is one of the great things about a lot of apple's accessibility stuff we've spoken about this in the past anybody can take advantage of the power that these things unlock you know so i and i think that's super cool because they make these things so powerful like anybody can use this and you can have it do wonderful things for you. And mm-hmm. there's also an on-screen pointer as well, which using your wrist. I just think it's incredibly clever that they're able to use the sensors in the Apple Watch. Just the idea of you moving your fingers being detectable by the Apple Watch, so cool. So they announced all of this to coincide with Accessibility Awareness Day, which was last week. Um, it feels like, though, some of these features, especially the assistive touch one, could have been a big moment in the WWDC keynote. And I expect that this is a symptom of a packed keynote. So maybe they wanted to make sure that these features really got noticed properly. Yeah. I think there's I think there's probably some truth to that. Uh, although I think whenever you're rolling out all your operating systems, the keynote's always going to be packed. I don't mm-hmm. think it actually tells us much because the, the, obviously 
they could can fill a keynote many times over and that's why there'll be a state of the union and mm-hmm. there'll be like mm-hmm. and there'll be all sorts of tidbits that we don't even see but they drop in other sessions i think what apple has learned and this is a new this is a new apple thing relatively from the last few years is that there are other venues that are good to make certain PR announcements and they get more pickup. And this is a great example where because of Accessibility Awareness Day, Apple is able to pull these features forward out of iOS 15 and get them noticed on Accessibility Awareness Day. So it allows Apple to say, like, look at our great new accessibility features. They get covered at a level that would probably not get covered mm-hmm. if it was just part of a developer keynote. Um, the other example I was thinking of is World Emoji Day, <laughs> yeah. where, you know, they they use that. It's like a... In, in journalism, we often will call that like a news peg. The idea is you want an angle, that, and it can't just be like, today Apple just decided to show you a feature from the future. That's like not that interesting. But if they can say, oh, it's World Emoji Day, that gives us, a, us an excuse to do a press release about all the emoji that are coming to the in, in the future to uh, iOS. And Accessibility Awareness Day gives them something to hang a story about Apple's support for accessibility. So I think that Apple likes doing this. And you're right, they can afford to do it because it's not as if the keynote isn't going to be packed. And if they still want to mention it in the keynote, they can now mention it and have it be kind of an aside, which is plus we've got all these amazing accessibility features that we announced two weeks ago. So um, I don't think it's evidence of anything other than the fact that, sure, that WWDC keynote will be packed as usual. Um, but I like it. I, I actually really like the idea that Apple doesn't feel like they need to hold all of their future announcements until the one moment at, at one time when they roll out a, a developer beta. If uh, you want to know more about these kinds of features, you should check out Parallel here on Relay FM. So it's hosted by Shadi Brisbane. Shadi's going to do a better job of talking about all of this stuff than we will. But So you can go check it out. That's at relay.fm slash parallel. Yep. Jason, you have some upstream news that you'd like to I share do. with the I do. I do. I want to give you the upstream update. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of stories this week um, that I thought were interesting enough for us to mention, even though we've got such a packed show. One of them is there was a New York Times story about uh, Netflix doing this trilogy of films called Fear Street. And I just thought it was really funny because... They're selling it as if it's a new idea, which is they made three movies and they're going to release one of them every week for three Fridays in a wo- in a row. It's like binge watching, but for movies. And I thought to myself, how is this any different from anything else that Netflix does? It, other than the fact that it's a weekly release instead of just dropping them all at once. But like, at what point is movies just TV? Like, what makes these movies what what makes them movies? There, it's it seems to me like three episodes of a three episode TV series. They're made. I would imagine the same way that TV shows are made. I just thought it was really funny that Netflix is like, oh, get this, everybody. We're gonna we're gonna release this thing weekly, and everybody's like, uh, yeah, that's what TV has done for ever yeah. until you uh, came no, along like, why not why not like six one hour why, like why three movies it's, well it's apparently it's thing. set in three different three different settings okay. and so they're interconnected but they're set in three different settings which i would say great that's three episodes we call those episodes of a tv show but it, i just I, I point this out i mean i can see the arguments either way it's fine mm-hmm. i just think it's really funny because 
we the definitions of movies and TV have become so blurred because of streaming and because of the way things get made and the way things get released. And it just tickled me, the idea that Netflix is sort of like, oh, we've invented something brand new. It's weekly releases of new content on our platform. Like, that's not new at all. Um, but they've decided that this is a movie, which it's not, right? It's Or is it... I don't know. It's, I just, I think it's very funny that this is just, it's literally, we're, we're releasing three, two hour things on a weekly basis and it's kind of a stunt, but also at the same time, like it's entirely based on marketing. Like they could do this. They could have released it all on a binge. They could have released it all across, you know, six episodes and called it episodes. They just decided to market it as three movies. So, and it's from a, from a long series of books. So they could do this more. I guess they could order more episodes of whatever this is. I'm also curious about how it looks in the Netflix interface, right? Mm. Have they created a new, like, Fear Street movie series index? It's like, oh, it isn't a TV series. It's a movie series. Uh, Look at movie one, movie two, and movie three of, I don't know, release one? (laughs) Can we rename seasons and episodes to sound more movie-like? Okay, so... That's that's that one. Netflix is going to Netflix. Um, there's a story that that uh, made me laugh that I wanted to mention, which we've been talking here about the plus, the rise of the plus. So many plus services. A bunch of streaming services offer ad tiers where you pay less and you get ads. So Paramount Plus does this. Peacock does this. A lot of the especially traditional um, entertainment companies that have I think what we were talking about with Peacock Plus was um, they've got ad salespeople, right? And like, well, what do the ad salespeople have to do? And they're like, no, 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 it's okay. We're going to have a, an ad version of our service and we'll make money. We'll have more viewers. Uh, they'll pay us a little bit less, but we'll make money because we'll, we'll sell, sell ads and show them the ads. But Warner Media hadn't done that. Um, and HBO famously, you know, is an ad-free kind of service. But now they've announced uh, ad-supported tier of HBO Max, which I don't know what we call that. Is there you have a name? For well, what didn't, this is? didn't we were joking around about like HBO Max minus <laughs> or, or plus <laughs> HBO Max minuscule Max Max small H- right HBO min. Min max. Um, <laughs> there you go. Anyway, for ten dollars a month, mm-hmm. which is cheaper uh, than the fifteen dollars a month for no ads, you you will be able to get a version with ads. And it's more complicated than that because, like, HBO shows don't have ad breaks in them. So how will they do it? And the answer seems to be that you'll get the HBO shows with no ads. Maybe there'll be a pre-roll ad or a post-roll ad or something like that. But like, they're not going to be ad breaks in HBO shows. But all their other stuff that they do, they're going to be able to start sticking ads in there. And you know, the load of streaming ads is not as great as the load of ads on broadcast TV or anything like that. And in fact, the head of ad sales, because of course the head of ad sales is quoted here, um, says it will have the lightest ad load in the industry. So it's not a lot of ads, but they are going to get, basically cut you a deal where if you spend $5 a month less, you will get access to HBO Max, but you will see some ads. Uh, so HBO Max minus um, coming soon. And then uh, one more item, which is... Uh, the, what we predicted sort of uh, has come true. MGM has, it looks like maybe finally get getting snapped up by a tech giant uh, reports that 
Amazon may buy MGM. And MGM, you know, what it what it has, it's a it's a studio, it's got some things that it owns. It's the classic MGM films all got sold off a long time ago, but it does have a film library. It has James Bond, although that's even complicated because the Eon Productions actually controls James Bond. Uh, so you can buy MGM and release James Bond movies, but you still need the, basically the Broccoli family has to work with you and approve everything that you do. Uh, but so there's a, the, this story is interesting yeah. uh, background wise because MGM has been trying apparently to sell itself for a long time to a tech mm-hmm. giant. And the feedback has been, they're asking too much, but maybe Jeff Bezos is now intrigued. Maybe Jeff Bezos just wants to own James Bond. I don't know. But um, we had speculated that maybe this would be something that Apple could snap up. And apparently, Apple and Amazon and other companies have sniffed around MGM, but they've all found the price to just be more than it's worth because it's not that it's not that great. It's something, but it's not that great. Yeah, re- really what you want is James Bond, right? Like that's probably what anybody would buy well, MGN for. There, there's there's the library of stuff. You get some content and there's some franchise possibilities in there. Um, but James Bond is the big asset for them, even though it's not entirely theirs. That's, that's the big asset. I do wonder though, following the rule, which is who benefits by having a story leak like this. I do wonder if this is once again somebody at MGM trying to stoke the flames and be like, look, MGM might actually get bought by somebody in hopes of either making the deal uh, go along or making the deal close faster or making somebody else come to the table and say, no, no, I want to buy MGM. I don't know. But the, the story seems to be, the implication is that it's progressed a little bit further and that Amazon is in serious talks to buy MGM. Um, but you know, the truth is that Amazon is so huge and Jeff Bezos has so much money on his own that, uh, really they can buy whatever they want. The question is, you know, is it worth it to them? And I, I do sometimes wonder if in the end, if the world's richest man says, yeah, but I want James Bond. They're like, all right. <laughs> okay. Jeff wants James Bond. Jeff knows what a good TV show is and he yes. wants James Bond. He knows so, what a good spy movie is too. I also wonder just as a sidebar. Because of Eon Productions, which is the family-owned company, that it was Albert Broccoli was one of the original producers of the Bond movies, and MGM does the releasing, and it's kind of this shared thing. Um, and one of the stories that I read pointed out that like one of the challenges with this is that they control it and they can say yes or no, and they have been they are very conservative in what they do, and so they have been pretty focused on there's just a James Bond movie every three or four years and they don't do spinoffs and there's no TV show or anything like that. And I wonder if that's one of the deals here. And if one of the delays might be that anybody who buys MGM has to go talk to Eon Productions and say, Look, I would, yes, I bet. It what is are you going to let us do? Or can we buy you out? Right. Uh, is the family willing to sell James Bond after all of this? And if not that, what does our partnership look like? Does Amazon go to them and say, did you see what we did with the Jack Ryan show? Now imagine what we could do with James Bond. We could have movies and we could have a TV show spinoff. We could have the double, the, you know, the English agent's office, double O number TV show. And we could do all this stuff and it'd be like a, a, a huge franchise. And would you be amenable? And if they say, well, no, we're we just we we just want one theatrical release every three years. It's like oh well, then MGM is less intriguing to us. So I wonder about all of those kind of conversations. I love the idea that you can buy this whole company, but in the end, there's this other little small company that's basically family run that can say yes or no to everything you want to do. That's uh, 
hilarious. So we'll see. But anyway, there's a little bit of upstream and that was it. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by our good friends at Memberful. Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience used by the biggest creators on the web. We use it here on this very show to power Upgrade Plus. You're able to generate sustainable recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. You've heard us talk about our Relay FM membership program. It is powered by Memberful. We've used them for years now, for all the way back to the beginning of our membership program, and are using them even more, like in using all of their new features to power our bonus content stuff. And it makes it super easy for us to be able to do that, to offer to our members, and for us from a business perspective, to diversify the income that we make as creators, which is amazing. And it has been you know, especially over the last year, such a weight off our minds to be able to provide this content for people that want to give us money and that kind of balance in the way that we make our revenue as creators has been really amazing. And we've been so thankful for Memberful for the tools that they provide to let us do that. Maybe you're already producing content of your own. You're relying on advertising or some other means. Memberful makes it easy to diversify with everything that you need to run a membership program, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, free trials, private podcasts, and tons more, while leaving you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience, your brand, and your membership. If you're a content creator, Memberful can help you monetize your passion. Get started for free at memberful.com with no credit card required. That's M-E-M-B-E-R-F-U-L.com. Go there right now and check it out. It could be the start of something exciting. Our thanks to Memberful for their support of this show and Relay FM. Jason Snell, I am talking to you right now from a yellow iMac. What? Yep. So... Late, uh, kind of late last week, I took delivery of my very first pre-release Apple review hardware. So last Thursday, uh, I had an iMac arrive. And yeah. this was kind of funny because it was originally supposed to arrive on Wednesday, but it got delayed in shipping. And I was so nervous because if it arrived on Friday, it wasn't pre-release hardware anymore. It was just the day everybody else had it. And it was like, I was like, please let it arrive Thursday because then I'll actually get what I wanted from it. Because look, just as a quick sidebar, this is just was an important thing to me. You know, like I've been doing this stuff for 10 or 11 years now, and this was always something that I wanted, right? Like I've had some review hardware in the past, but it's been of products that were already available. And this was like, it was 24 hours, but it was 24 hours where I had this iMac and nobody else had it, right? Or like just such a small group of people. So it was really cool. And I was very thankful to to get that. But now let me talk about my experiences of it, because I've been using this iMac for the best part of half a week now. And I've been using it quite extensively, actually. So I have the yellow one. Um, they Apple offered me the choice, and I said I would like either the orange one or the yellow one, and I got the yellow one. And I was actually, in the end, happy to have the yellow one because then I had a different one to you, right? Because <laughs> you had the orange one, so I have sure. a different one. And I wanted to try something different. Like One of the reasons I asked for yellow is because I don't think it's one that I necessarily would have bought myself, but... I wanted to see something different. And like I think most of these iMacs, what you see in person is so different looking to what you see on the website because these things are hard to photograph, right? Like this yellow one, it's... And again, like I've been sharing pictures of mine and I, I feel like I can just can't get the color in my images to look how they look in real life. Did you find that with the images that you were taking of your orange model? It's really hard. Um, 
color, getting color accurate is hard. And then depending on the setting and the context, there's a picture I posted, I think, on Twitter that was literally the orange iMac with a, with an orange iPad case and a San Francisco Giants baseball cap and I was really and my wall which is orange and I was really just trying to get at look at all the different shades of orange right just to say it's kind of hard uh to get it across and you know it I I think you're right like Apple Apple has all of its sort of photography on this very light gray it's very much like the border of the, the iMac screen and you know are they trying to make it look accurate or are they trying to make it look good? I don't know. It's very hard to get across what they actually look like. And honestly, the, as lighting changes, th- this is a anodized aluminum and it, and it's got a texture. And so the reflection and the texture change in different light. So it's very hard to get across what it looks like because it looks different in different contexts. And then you add in different lighting and it's uh yeah you kind of need to see it in person and i hate to say this because it's not not practical but i think you kind of need to see it where you're gonna have it which means you kind of need to take one home yeah that's and (laughs) and 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 be willing to take it back yeah right which is not something that you can do but it it, there's truth in that like depending on what it looks like uh in the store it might not look the same in your house at least i I have been hearing from people and seeing pictures too that apple stores seem to have them all like even though you can't buy all the colors or maybe whatever, they actually do have them. So because I think there's a few colors you can only get online, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think Stephen reported on that. But they have all the colors at the stores. So because I've been, you know, I've been having people message me and say, "Oh, look, I wasn't sure about the yellow one. I saw it in person," or like, "Oh, actually, I want the green one." That kind of thing. And so this yellow model, it's like a combination of like a pastel kind of yellow on the front. And like a kind of like Easter kind of yellow on the front and then almost gold, right? Like the the, the foot and the yeah. back of it are, are gold. But again, like in the images that I take, the gold seems way more gold. Like I can't seem to get it. Like it looks like it's like a real like gold gold, but it's it's way more on the yellow. And it, it what it looks like to me, honestly, is anodized yellow aluminium. But in the images that I take, it looks like they've tried to make a gold version, and it and it isn't as so strong as that color. Uh, oh. The unboxing experience is so good for this product. They did such a great job with the packaging that even like the handle is like a a woven material. Yeah, it's fabric handle that's in the color of the iMac. Which again, it's like, yeah, how hard do they make it for themselves, right? We're managing these products that now have like not only seven different boxes, seven different handle colors for all the boxes. Um, and mm-hmm. and also you get colored stickers. I have colored stickers in two tones. There's one which is more yellow and one which is gold, which is fun because they do the color stickers now. But the actual opening of the whole thing is really nice. Like you lay the box down, you open it up, you pull the sides down and it will kind of presents itself and you've got like a big sticker on the screen and it says hello again in the color of the computer i don't know you spend this kind of money on a product like this you want it to be special and i feel like you know apple is now i think finding its way in making special unboxing experiences that are responsible from a environmental perspective yeah, it's all it's all um, cardboard, and uh, they also they do things like they have the pull tabs and stuff now that make yeah. it a lot easier to get in and out. It is I what struck me about it that's funny is first off the iMac is shipped upside down. 
Yeah, that took me a minute. It took me a minute to work out how to open the box. Right? <laughs> oh, you uh-huh. got to kind of lay it down, and yeah, it's upside down, which is funny. and right, and it's also a, a rectangular um, box now. It's no longer kind of angled where you can't put it anywhere. The old iMac boxes were all like trapezoid mm-hmm. or something like thicker at the bottom than at the top, and it's not like mm, no. So uh, it's it, and it's really nice packaging. It's very easy to get the the iMac out too because obviously when you open up that box that's what you want to do is get your iMac out and they did a good job for sure the peripherals I just love the look of them all like the colors and shapes are nice like I, I like the shapes of everything and like everything's nice and round and stuff um, the keyboard okay so I love the look of the keyboard it's too low to the desk, like the profile of it's too low for me now. You know, I'm I'm used to much chunkier keyboards with bigger typing angles and stuff now. So the using a magic keyboard uh, is so strange feeling. Touch ID is great. Um, I've noticed as well, like it's a little slower than Touch ID on other devices, which I assume is something to do with needing to send that information wirelessly. I'm leaving the keyboard on my desk right now, like even though I'm using a a, a keyboard, one of my fancy keyboards i have the sure. the the magic keyboard behind it so i can get the touch id and i had a friend recommend to me to mount the keyboard underneath my desk so i can just reach under and authenticate when i have one of my own i'm going to do this because <laughs> it's such a silly little idea but makes sense because all i have this on my desk for right now is just to get to the touch id button so, yeah, somebody's going to need to. Somebody on Etsy is going to make like a uh, a magic keyboard Touch ID cover thing that you just snap on and it and it uh, locks out all the other keys. Oh, that's a good but, idea too. But it I has just it. the one key, and then you can and then you <laughs> mount it or desk. put stuff on it, and it's just for that one. Yeah. So the power brick too is big. The, it's bigger than I thought. Right, the actual power brick itself. But having Ethernet there is great because I use Ethernet on this machine. I just plug it in. It's one less cable that needs to be long, right? Like everything's down on the ground now. I like that. Because as well, something that was happening for me was my Ethernet cable was is definitely is shorter than the cable that Apple ships with the power brick. So I had to like suspend my Eero on top of some sound dampening foam because if I would put my desk into standing mode, my Eero was just like hanging there. Uh, uh-huh. So I know I don't need to do that because it just plugs straight into the one on the ground, which is much nice, much nicer. Yeah. The iMac foot, you know, we knew this, the stand, like it's not high enough for me. It has to be raised. It's too low down to the desk. Mike, are you are you telling me that all of uh, Apple's ergonomic consultants and calculations that calculated that this is exactly the right height for the iMac were did not work for you? It did not work for me. Like, I'm sure. Mm. Look, I believe that they did what Navpreet told us, right? That they looked at a bunch of data and they picked the size that they think is best. I, it, why would you not do that, right? But, but it's like the average size, exactly. right? And I'm not an average size guy. Well, I was going to say people who are taller or shorter. Uh, mm-hmm. in whatever length, you know, maybe it's from, from the waist up when you're sitting down and it's different when you're standing, but like, there's going to be a lot of people who don't fit in that area, which mm-hmm. is why there should be an adjustable stand because you get this beautiful thing that's all color matched and then you've got it sitting on top of a Mac mini. <laughs> it's sort of, yep. I mean, come, yeah, mine, come mine is sitting on top of my <laughs> Mac mini and it was on my desk uh, right now. And I've bought this stand as a company called Grove made who make nice, but an expensive product. Uh, and I bought this stand cause I like the look of it. And it matches my uh, desk. And uh, I figure that this stand I'm going to keep around for whatever product comes next. Because I was thinking about like if for my next iMac, 
to go with Vesa, but yeah. for me, I, put on an arm, put I an feel arm like, on it, uh, maybe potentially. But I'm gonna have to stand anyway, so I have to stand coming. Um, also, though, I do hope, and we said this before, that on a higher end iMac, Apple creates at least an option for a high adjustable stand like the XDR. You know, even if I have to pay extra for it, you know, as long as it's not $1,000, I would pay extra for it, though. You know, like if they said, like, this is it, but you can get the pro stand and it's like 400 bucks more, I would think about it, right? Depending on how much I'm spending on the machine, I would think about it because I really do want that adjustability in just in a way that this machine doesn't provide. Similarly, this machine doesn't have enough ports for me. You know, like the four... USB-shaped ports, two Thunderbolt. It's just not enough. Like, what I really need is two regular USB ports as well because I just have stuff that isn't... Like, so, for example, like, I use a Logitech mouse and I need a little unifying receiver and they only do those in USB-A. The iMac Pro has seven ports on the back Mm -hmm. and I just looked. I have five of them plugged. So the four on the higher-end iMac would not be enough for me. Um, I... What we know about the M1, right, is that if you look at the Mac Mini, it's got two Thunderbolt and then two USB-A. And then we look at this one, and it's got two Thunderbolt and two USB-C. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the M1 can't do more than that in terms of ports. So yep. what I wonder is, if they do the larger iMac at some point here, who knows? Mark Gurman said they stopped for a while. I don't know what that means. But if they do a larger iMac, which is what I would really like to see and be very interested in buying, will they then go back to doing what they did, especially if we're thinking it's more for, you know, it's more expensive and it's bigger and it's more for pro-level users and it's using a different chip. Would they go back to something like what the iMac Pro has, which is the uh, multiple Thunderbolt and USB-C and USB-A ports to have a bunch of ports back there? I don't know what they feel about ports. And yeah, you can do hubs and stuff, but it's not as good. It's not as nice if you have to start buying hubs and hubs are expensive and complicated and, and it gets weird really fast. Yeah, like I have a, a, just a seven port USB hub, which I now have three things plugged into. Like, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm mostly fine with that, but some stuff just doesn't work as well when it's plugged into a hub. And those things I also can't plug into the machine because they're USB-A thing. So you kind of stuck, right? Like, I, I my, my hope is that for more professional machines, they, like higher-end machines down the line, they find a way to put more ports on them. The rumors of the MacBook Pro, you know, getting the HDMI and the SD card slot mm-hmm. do actually fill me with some confidence because... Yep. That they do feel like for that machine specifically, that's the best stuff to plug on it. Like I don't really mind so much about US regular USB on the laptops because you know you're you're probably gonna use a dock or a hub for those things anyway. But it feels like they're adding more stuff on. I would hope to see them continue to do that. I personally love how thin this iMac is. It feels like a complete flex from Apple to make it this thin. Right? It's just like, we're going to make a thin computer. That's what we want to do. But, like, it, it yep. surprises me. Like, when you turn on this machine, like, the first time I turned it on, like, you reach around to the back to press the button. You know, you put your thumb on the front and your finger on the back. I kind of misjudged it based on my my <laughs> iMac Pro. And it's like, oh, wait, hang on a minute. Like, I, you know, it feels like you're kind of just pinching your fingers together to turn the thing on. Like, it really is very impressive. 
just from a technical standpoint, but adds just this thing is just so beautiful. Like how yeah. thin it is is just so incredible to me. And I for me, like the thinness adds to the overall specialness of the design, and I have more sure. to say on the design in a bit. But I personally, I think they made the right decision with the with making this whole thing just so thin and modern looking. I love it the way it is. Yeah, I agree. I I am not a fan of the uh, school of thought that's like, well, it's just an iMac. We should make it as thick as possible. Like, well, no, it is in a bunch of spaces, and you want it to look pretty. It looks much nicer flat than it did when it kind of had the the thickening at the back edge <laughs> and, and and sort of trying to fake it at the corners. And then you're right, like for uh, turning it on or uh, tilting it, anytime you're reaching out and moving it around, I imagine this will be true if you put it on an arm as well. It is, first off, your hands are, instead of on the sort of slope of the current iMac design that we have with the iMac Pro, um, it's just, it's very easily grabbable. It's super light because it's less than 10 pounds. Moving it around is really easy. Like carrying it around uh, to different locations in your house is also really easy. Like I, I think it's the right thing to do and the it's a, it's the right kind of shape. I, I just, I don't, I, 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 I appreciate the fact that it could be any size and they could just make it thicker and heavier and bigger. Like, heck, they could just make it the size of the original iMac if they really wanted to. Just have it be enormous and weigh 40 pounds. But um, I think in general, having it be thin and light and having that consistent, the flat back that also looks really good, I, I do think it matters. If you're somebody who puts it at a desk and never adjusts it and never sees the back because it's facing against a cube wall or something, well, yeah. You're not really taking advantage of what this thing is, but you're not who this design is for. This design is for uh, people seeing it from the back and people seeing it from the side and it being in environments. That's why the colorful uh, stuff is on the backside too. That's the whole mm -hmm. idea here. So I think I think it's uh, I like that they did this. I think that this is what the iMac should be. This is like the ideal. They're trying to get closer to the that little floating monitor that was on top of the G4 iMac back in the day that, yep. that had the giant heavy computer beneath it. Like the ideal of the iMac is that the computer starts to disappear. And I think that uh I think that this one gets closer to that ideal in a lot of delightful ways. 24 inch screen I think is is fine for me. Um, I would say that like going from twenty one to twenty four, that's a big difference. Like, and I think that twenty four is fine. I, I set the resolution to give me more space, and that gave me kind of just enough real estate to work with from what I'm used to on say twenty seven inch monitors or whatever. Um, one thing that I immediately noticed, which I didn't think I would notice, but did, is just how much nicer the screen is on this than any third party monitor that I have. Yep. Like, I've been used to recently using third-party monitors more than using my iMac, and I have a 27-inch Dell that was on this dis on this uh, desk, and it was a 4K display. And I was like, oh, this is just as good as my iMac screen or whatever. It was fine. Big difference. It just looks so much better in every possible yeah. way. Like, I don't know exactly what it is that Apple does to make their monitors look so good, but they do something. I know it's like a lot of little things, I'm sure, but this just is so much nicer. It's so much crisper as a display. Um, like I'd be sad to go back now on this on this desk from it. I think they don't. I mentioned this in my review. I think that we don't give enough credit to Apple for its displays because yeah. 
they they advance it so much that you end up sort of just taking it for granted. Like they've had the they've been pushing these iMac displays forward for the last what six years since they first came out with a Retina iMac, and they added the wider color gamut and you know presumably at some point here there's going to be mini led in these things and they'll be even more impressive but like they're really good displays this is the root of why people complain that there isn't a non expensive 6k apple external display is like the imac display is just better than mm-hmm. any of those third party displays that are out there and you have to have an iMac to get it, basically, or buy the Pro Display XDR, which is ridiculous. So those are your choices right now because the third-party displays just aren't as good. Apple is really good at this, and it you know that's why it's a little frustrating if you're somebody who wants a Mac Pro or a Mac Mini or just an external display for your laptop that the third-party choices there aren't great, and Apple is not letting you just buy a essentially an iMac screen and make it your display because like the iMac. Imagine a version of that that was uh, maybe, you know, doesn't have the chin and it's just a display. Uh, That would be really good. That would be a really good display. A lot of people would buy it. But Apple doesn't want to make it for some reason. Not yet. Anyway. So going back to the color, I really like and I very much enjoy it. It puts a smile on my face to have this like hint of color in my peripheral vision from the chin, from the foot, just while I'm looking at the Mac. And also the... And again, like those, I understand what Apple's saying now about the the edges not being white. They they it's like a, a white with a mix of light gray. It's almost as if there was something dark behind it, and the plastic was semi translucent. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a light. It is a light gray. If you yeah. hold a piece of paper next to it, you're like, oh yeah, it's not white. It's light gray, but it is it is very light, light gray. But it's a neutral color. I mean, my my experience in using it which we talked about last week was that it's almost like a gradient where there's the bright pop from the foot and then there's the lighter color on the chin mm-hmm. and then there's the gray border and then there's the screen. And I think that like, as I used it, I was like, Oh, I get why they did this. Like you can really focus on the screen and the rest of it just kind of drops away. And yet in your peripheral vision, you still got kind of the color popping there. And if you lean back a little bit and then you're looking at your iMac, you're like, Oh, yellow, right. Or orange. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but you're not like trying to, focus on the screen and like I, I look this yellow is getting in my vision i can't see the screen i feel like it's a good balance where it's not overwhelming you like i think people were worried about and i use my mac in dark mode and i don't feel like it's out of place because it, dark mode on the mac i mean there's still a lot of color going on there's still a lot of brightness right. going on maybe if you you know really were aggressive with it, but like right now i'm looking at a google docs window and it's white you know so it's, it's it, i feel like there's some differences with dark modes on the mac than on ios devices and stuff like that yeah but i feel like the design the color of this mac it, it sparks joy for me like, and i can't remember the last time that hardware gave me that kind of joyous feeling like it's playfulness mhm and apple designs used to do this for me Right, I used to feel like there was a playful joy to the hardware. And it's not that hardware design has been bad. I just think that Apple had a different priority for their design. Like They wanted to create premium, sleek, stylish-looking devices. And whilst this machine is still premium and sleek, it's also in big, bright colors. And that kind of makes it more joyous. Like My system tint is yellow. And that also makes me smile because it's like, oh, even Safari knows that this is a yellow computer. 
right? Yeah. Like I love that little stuff. Like it, it, these are like frequent reminders that I am using a computer that I find fun whilst also it is incredibly powerful. Like I've not even really spoken, because there isn't really much to say, I think about the M1 that you haven't heard before, but it has made me realize something in using this machine for editing and stuff like that. One I had noticed about the MacBook Pro compared to my iMac Pro, where the M1 right now is not as fast in some tasks as my iMac Pro is, like exporting a project from Logic. But every, but during the actual editing process, everything is much more smooth, right? The M1 in Logic yeah. is a much nicer experience. And I actually think for me, that is more important than a few seconds on the export because I'm less frustrated and have more of an enjoyable experience actually doing the hard part of the work. So this machine right now is more tuned to what I need. But what I expect from... M1X or M2 or whatever it's going to be. It's both of those things. All of the performance gains that I see in these pro applications because of Apple Silicon, plus the power to export more fast, you know, than the iMac Pro would. Go back to the design. I know that a lot of people are like, why is the chin here? Get rid of the chin. I just want no bezels. I say no. I I love I don't want them to get rid of the chin on the iMac. I think that it adds personality to this computer. If it had no chin, it would look like a monitor, and I don't yep. want my computer to look like a monitor. I want my computer to look like a computer. And maybe this is like a nostalgia thing for me or there's like some kind of blinkered vision, I don't know, but for me, this looks like a computer and it looks like a fun, beautiful computer with my phone with my iPad, I want no bezels. Do you know why? Because I have to hold it. Spaces of a premium in my hands. I don't have that concern with my computer. Like it's not a problem for me to to have no bezels. For 17 years, the IMAX uh, look from the front has been a screen with a chin below it. Mm-hmm. Like that's what an iMac looks like, right? And although they took the logo off of it, they have the color accent there. I, you know, this is their decision, right? Is to do it this way because they, of course, they could have put it behind. It would have been a little bit thicker, but they could have put it behind the screen and had a like a thicker iMac uh, that didn't have it. But I think you're exactly right. Like the chin, and we mentioned this when we when we interviewed them. But like the chin is part of the design language of the iMac. It has been for a long time. You could get rid of it, but like. I I don't view the last 17 years of the iMac as a, a, the eternal struggle to get rid of the chin. Like the chin, it, it's it's part of the iMac. Like you could, yeah, fine, you're right. You could take it off. It would look like a monitor at that point more than a computer. And I think that that chin almost signals like, oh, you're looking at an iMac. Yeah. And I think it's just like one of the, it's just whatever your tastes are for the design. Because if you got rid of the chin, it would look more sleek. But as I said earlier... I kind of want it to be fun. Like, this iMac feels iconic in its design to me, right? Like, because it is building on all of the design language of iMacs before, but the color and the thinness, I think, makes it a design that we will look back on, I feel, maybe as fondly as we look back on the G3. Because my hope and my feeling is right now, this is the beginning of... Apple computers with more personality and fun again. 
in a way that they haven't for a while. You know, this is something you touched on so much during 20 Max of 2020 that the design of a lot of the computers have been very similar for a long period of time. Yeah. I did a whole rant in in that podcast series about how Apple should put color on the Mac again. So I'm very happy that we've been asking for this for ages, right? Like starting with the iPhone and we want colors on our iPads and colors on our Macs. Like, we have, it's been great for a long time. Been very happy with the design. Apple have made beautiful products, but you got to change every now and then. And I think that all this bright and beautiful color that is a great change. Right. And yeah, I don't think I'm going to get these wonderful pastel colors on Pro machines, but I am expecting like midnight green, Pacific blue, like you know that kind of stuff. Like so, I can still have something different. Um, right. I actually want to wrap up my thoughts here by talking about the speakers because I had a revelation with the speakers. So okay, I just put some music on. So I was like, oh, well, yeah, this has speakers in it. Apple talk about the speakers being good. And I didn't expect the speakers on this machine to sound as good as they do, considering the kind of limited space that they're dealing with. And like to my ears, they sounded really great for music. Like, it just sounded like there was some separation and the bass was good and everything was clear and I thought it sounded really great. And it made me think that like, I could imagine someone very happily having this computer in their living room and using it to play music like a HomePod as well as you might do other computer style stuff on it. And then I thought, well, I think that this is kind of what this iMac is. Like it's where it shines. It is a computer that becomes a part of your home in a way that computers, I think, for a long time, they've been like, you put them in the office or like you get them out of the way. And I think that this one has more going for it to be a part of the living room or the family room than maybe a lot of computers have in a while. Like it doesn't take up a lot of space. There's a great screen, which is big. The Touch ID makes it super easy to switch between family members, which sure. this is super cool. Like anybody, if like if me and Jason are on, both registered to the computer, if I'm logged in and Jason puts his finger on the Touch ID sensor, it will switch to his account. It has great, the gross great speakers. It has a good camera and mics for video calling and stuff. Like it feels like it has this vibe of a kind of general purpose home family computer in a way that I don't remember for a while. And I think all of the colors and stuff really accentuate that. I, I think that this, for what this machine is and what it is expected to be used for, I think it's a slam dunk. Like, I adore it. I think it's a fantastic computer. And I didn't think that I would feel so excited about the 21-inch iMac replacement because I feel like I knew what that computer was going to be, but I was wrong. It's a way cooler computer than that one that was in my mind. I think it's great. I love it. Yeah, I I more or less agree. I I'm disappointed by the webcam, even though it's the best Mac webcam ever. Because having seen Center Stage, like mm-hmm. they should have done that on the iMac, and maybe they will do that in the future. In fact, I think it's almost certain that they will. Um, but yeah, I I think I agree with you that it's fun. And most of the criticism I've seen, honestly, is from people for whom this is not the Mac that they want. Right? Like this isn't for you. And and I'll also. Uh, it's just funny. A lot of the criticism is is very much sort of stuff that's not an issue. Like people don't like the colors. It's like, well, that's why there's the silver one. So stop talking about the colors. If we like the colors, we're not, you know, 
We're not telling you you have to get the colors, get the silver one. They make the silver one for a reason, but we're excited about the colors. And similarly, it's a low-end iMac. It is the 24-inch, formerly the 21-and-a-half-inch iMac. There will be more, you know, and it's on an M1. There will be more powerful, bigger, probably iMacs in the relatively near future. Uh, but for what this is, and Apple trying to find a place for it, where does it belong? Why do you need a desktop computer at your house now? Something like this is that's Apple's argument of like, this is uh, pleasant to reside in a house and you can move it around and uh, different people can use it. And it's got the big screen, which is a lot bigger than any mobile device you're using uh, for when you want to use that big screen. And yeah. Yeah. Also, I like I agree about the speakers. I didn't write about it, but I did write my article with music playing on the speakers. Um, and it's good. It's good enough that I don't think that I would need a separate external speaker most of the time when I'm working, if I was just editing podcasts and, uh, and, and listening to music when I'm writing. Yeah, I've been choosing to listen to music on these speakers where typically, even with my iMac Pro, I would use my headphones instead. I, I was, I've been quite surprised at how good they sound. I just wanted to dovetail from the beginning of our conversation and just say that like for a memory for me is like my first experience with pre-release hardware. I'm kind of, I'm really pleased it was this computer because I think I'm going to, I think this is just going to be a memorable computer anyway. And so, yeah, it's been a fun experience for me. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast website experience. No matter how targeted your marketing content or how sleek your website may look, if it's going to be slow, people are going to bounce. But with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance affects your visitors' experiences so you're able to take action before your business is impacted, all for as low as $10 a month. Whether your visitors are dispersed around the world or across browsers, different devices, different platforms, Pingdom will help you identify bottlenecks, troubleshoot performance, and make informed optimizations. And this will ensure that your users have a great experience. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, and it's built for scalability. This means that you're able to monitor millions of page views, not just sample data, at an affordable price. Get live site performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com RelayFM right now now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you're ready to buy, use the code UPGRADE at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and Relay FM. Let's talk about the iPad Pro. Well, yeah, let's do it. Wow. So I love this. I, I just I feel like we could sum it up with this one <laughs> line from your review. Uh, this is in your introduction. A Hall of Fame device that just can't fulfill its remarkable potential. <laughs> It's really great. We 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 got one on Friday, so I got one for, for Adina, and um, I've been poking around with it very much, but I haven't spent anywhere near as much time as you. Like I've just been doing the kind of things you would do, right? I looked at how dark some UI is in some sure. images, and we played around with center stage. But you know, I haven't done any of the testing that you will have done on yours. Overall. How do you feel about this? Does this iPad excite you? Are you going to get one for yourself? Uh, well, it, does it excite me? It is very impressive in a lot of ways, but this is the theme of the whole thing, which is it's impressive in a lot of ways, and I'm sure that I could use some of the some of the power doing some of the stuff I do, like like editing, but it it still feels like 
I would like there to be more here. That mm-hmm. you could really argue that if you bought an iPad Pro in 2018, you have no reason to update to this unless you really want that screen. Um, I'm like everybody else hoping that at the developer conference, we're going to get iPad OS 15 and it's going to legitimately use the features of this thing in a way that um, older devices don't. And it's going to make you want to get it. And I have some theories about that. I actually wrote about that uh, six colors members post last week about that, that I, I have a theory that one of the reasons that they come with eight and 16 gigs of Ram in addition to it just sort of being M1 standard, is if you're going to rethink multitasking on the iPad and potentially allow apps to run in, you know, in Windows and have multiple apps running and viewable at the same time, they need to be in memory. Uh, there's much more memory pressure if you expand multitasking on iPad OS than there used to be. And it's one of those things where having 8 or 16 gigs of RAM suddenly becomes really convenient and not just I can have a lot of browser tabs hmm. or I can I can launch a bunch of apps and they instantly launch instead of having to relaunch because they quit in the background because of memory pressure. Like, I feel like you can definitely invent all sorts of ways where the the specs of this thing are suddenly made much more necessary by the OS. Yeah. But... Today, you know, for 99% of the people who use the iPad Pro, you could just, if you're using the 2018 model, you know, you just go on using it and it's not going to be appreciably different. Um, the Yes, the screen is amazing. It is beautiful. I imagine that every Apple display uh, that is currently using backlight LCD is going to go to this mini LED backlight and... Uh, you know, that's going to roll out over the next few years and it's going to dramatically improve everybody's displays. And that's really exciting because it's gorgeous. It is a fantastic display. I so desperately want it in an 11 inch because just, you know, I was trying to play around. I was like, okay, let me, let me feel this. And I was reading some stuff or whatever. And for what I am using my iPad for most these days, which is like a lot of reading and entertainment stuff and just taking some basic notes, I am using it in my hands more than I'm using it in the Magic Keyboard. And it's too big and heavy compared to the 11, like the 12.9. It's just too big and heavy. It, I mean, and I'm a 12.9 user and have been, and this one is just a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier. And as Federico said and uh, last week on Connected, and as I said in my review and he wrote in his review, like, you can tell. It's one of those moments I sent him a text. Mm-hmm. I, I basically said, I, I like it when, you know, we're working on these things parallel, in parallel and not talking to each other. And then I read your review and I think, oh, he, he said the same thing I did. And one of them is, yeah, it's noticeably heavier. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a lot heavier, but it's it's already a device that's kind of pushing it in terms of how big this thing is and how heavy it is and it's now a little bit heavier so what am i going to get out of this what am i going to get out of it well the screen is beautiful no doubt about it center stage is amazing no doubt about it um yes 11 inch ipads with this technology that will come at some point here uh will bring this to a lot more people and they'll love it too um center stage is going to go everywhere i i feel like it's only a matter of time before Every Apple device has center stage. It's so cool. 
the the whole idea that you'd put an ultra wide camera in the front facing camera. And so yeah, the selfies aren't quite as good because the selfies by default they're basically like cropped and ske- and deskewing the ultra wide camera to make it look like the same frame of of view, field of view as it was before. But if you tap or or pinch, you can get the ultra wide view, which is very very wide and kind of weird, but you get a 12 megapixel ultra wide view and then you can dynamically crop and deskew and create that effect of you having your own personal cameraman tracking you mm-hmm. <laughs> as you move around and somebody comes into frame there's in my story there's a there's a, a gif of uh of an actual family zoom that we did and my son and i sit down next to my wife and my daughter and the camera pulls out <laughs> so that well four of us are in the frame and when we leave it's not in the story but like when we leave i left and it goes down to three and then my son leaves and it goes down to two and it's just it's it's magical. It really does feel magical. It is a wonderful thing. So I can't see how Apple isn't going to be putting ultra-wide uh, forward-facing cameras and center stage into every product that it makes at some point, um, especially any product that is likely to be set down somewhere and not held in a hand. So maybe mm-hmm. the iPhone, maybe not the iPhone, although maybe the iPhone, but maybe not the iPhone, but like every Mac and all the iPads. Like it's such a great feature. We use this stuff all the time. It's so natural. I'm at the point now where if I can if I can do a video anything on that iPad Pro, that's where I choose to do it because yeah, it's they so should put it on the nice. iPhone. I mean, the iPhone already has a ultra wide. On I the think the only front facing. I thing. think the only issue with the iPhone is that if it's in your hand, it's got to fight your own hand movement, and I wonder right. if there's stabilization and issues there where you know it's trying to focus on your face and then you're moving it around and. How does that work? And I, I don't know. So that's that's the caveat I'll, I'll give there. But otherwise, yeah, I, I mean, it's great. I, I hate to do the thing that everybody is doing, but this is what it is, which is it's center stage is great. The screen is great. Um, it's an M1. It's just as fast as all those M1 Macs. I did the tests. It's just as fast. Uh, it doesn't boost the speed over the 2020 and 2018 iPad Pros as much because they already were using Apple Silicon, right? So it's not, it doesn't have to, they don't get the leg up on Intel effect, but it's faster. But again, how often are you pushing against the speed of the A12 in those models? Mm -hmm. How, How much do you hit the RAM limit, especially on the 2020 model that was all at six gigs of RAM? Um, Thunderbolt is nice, but unless you're in very particular things where you're hanging a whole bunch of devices, probably including a monitor off of it, then what you know you're not going to see it because the USB three is uh, the the USB that's on the previous models is faster than any you know regular hard drive that you would plug in is going to be. So Thunderbolt, it's like uh, it's overkill. It's all overkill and. That's great because you could buy this thing and it's probably going to work great at full capacity for a long time because it's such overkill. But at the same time, first off, you may already have one that works fine. So you should wait if it works fine for you because, you know, this doesn't really enable that much that's new. Um, And two, it's frustrating because I want it, you know, I want this hardware that's so amazing to allow me to do more. And it doesn't because... There are missing apps. Apple's Pro apps aren't there. And I know there are alternatives, but, um, you know, if you're like LumaFusion is great, but LumaFusion is not Final Cut Pro. Um, And so you have to learn a different app that behaves differently. And then Mm -hmm. if I want to work on a project 
on Final Cut Pro and then take it to LumaFusion or vice versa, it's it's either you can't do it or it's hard to do it. And you know, this could be better. Like Apple could have its own pro apps. Apple could rethink multitasking. Apple could do proper external device support or external display support. There are lots of things that that would make this uh, new iPad Pro be like, oh yes, look what it enables for me. But instead, I-, I worry that it ends up being an exercise of counting specs and saying, look at all the specs that are big. And a number without any context, a feature without any way to really use it is pointless. So that's where we are with the iPad Pro. And I'm somebody who loves the iPad and I use the iPad a lot. But I look at this thing and I just think, where's the where's the rest of it? And I apologize for that not being an original take because mm-hmm. it's literally every iPad Pro take for the last three years. But that, you know, we're kind of there again, which is this is an amazing piece of hardware with some really remarkable technology on it. And... Now what? At least we can say it is a better buy than the 2020 iPad Pro because this one got some real great quality of life features like center stage, like the display. The 2020 iPad Pro had essentially nothing. It had the LiDAR scanner and the one extra GPU core. Mm-hmm. Um, I had somebody ask me, like, I would have liked you to run your benchmark tests against the 2018 iPad Pro as well. And I'm like, it's the same. Like except the GPU score would be slightly less because it would be seven eighths instead of, you know, a hundred percent of the GPU cores of the Z model. But like, it's just, it, it, they didn't change it. It was Mm -hmm. so far ahead that they basically didn't change it. And they just added a LiDAR scanner. And this is more than that. This is appreciably faster, but again, you know, like, uh, I was talking to the developer of Ferrite and he said, MP3 exports are a lot faster because that's multi-threaded and they're they're a lot faster on the M1. And I edited a podcast this weekend on it. And yeah, that, that's great. That's that's an example where it's good. And I'm sure video editing is more responsive. I exported a, a two-hour almost long video from LumaFusion over the weekend. And, you know, it was, it, it's pr- pretty much the same performance as my MacBook Air, right? <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. or the 24-inch iMac. It's an M1. It does what you'd expect. It's just that, in the, in an iPad context, I, I just feel all of the... By, by calling it an M1, Apple is drawing attention to the fact that it's just as powerful as the Mac in terms of the hardware. And then you start looking around and, and, and say, well, yeah, but all of these things that I do on my Mac that I can't do on my iPad. I was seeing, I think it was Matt Casanelli today on Twitter was saying that... Um, Potentially, Apple do a disservice by releasing the hardware before the software. And I wonder what you thought about that. Like, would it be better to have at least waited until WWDC to show off the hardware mm. and put the hardware on sale? Because then you could at least say, like, we've seen what iOS 15 can do and we know how that's going to take advantage of this. Like, especially with being so close. You know, like a, a few weeks, really, difference. I understand the argument of, like, if you've got the hardware, release the hardware. Release yeah. the hardware! Uh, but there's, well, the, maybe, you know. But the the hardware development is going, it's in its, in its pipeline, and mm-hmm. you're replacing the old model with the new model. And I don't think that the new model, like, is harmed in some way by the fact that the software hasn't changed 
it's more a frustration about the platform, mm-hmm. like holding off on it and not releasing a thing that you designed, you know, two years ago and built a year ago and now is ready for production and then holding it for nine months or six months or even a month or two in order to reveal your your plan for your next operating system release. It, it seems like a silly thing to ask. It's like you should just release the hardware when you release the hardware. If honestly, part of part of my what my heart tells me is if this was the case, we'd still be waiting for the 2018 iPad pro to come out. (laughs) Like, right. I mean, not, not really, but like they could have held that for a while and they could have held this, the the, holding the hardware that already exists and could be mass produced because the software isn't ready is not only kind of a ridiculous suggestion, but it shows you just how broken this situation is. Mm. That that's the, that's the solution is don't make the software look bad. Just wait with the hardware. We know you're way ahead in hardware. Just sit on your hardware for a year until the software can catch up. And, you know, that's the that's the truth of it. So it, it's an ama- amazing product. And if you're in the market for an iPad Pro, uh, if you want that screen, if you want center stage, there's lots of reasons to get it. But, but yeah, um, it, we are put back in the position where we're hoping that the platform advances to make the more impressive hardware more useful. And I, I talk about the screen a lot. Yes, the 11 is going to give you the M1 in center stage. It's just not going to give you the, the screen. So th- this goes for the 11-inch model as well. Yeah, I think that screen, though, like, it's it's a big feature of this it, device. It's huge. It's it's a huge feature. And um, and it's the future of Apple displays. Like, it very clearly is that this is the, where they're going next. And I would be, I'd actually be surprised if you don't see it in uh, Apple's next round of laptops and probably if they do that higher end iMac that it would be there too because this this really feels like it's a, a tech intro of something and, and center stage actually those are tech intros of things that are going to go across the platform they just happen to be in the iPad Pro first this episode is brought to you by Public Sector Future. Public Sector Future is a podcast from Microsoft. I love finding new podcasts to listen to. I love the insight that they can give. And I love having something new in my rotation every week, something fun to look forward to. If you're looking for something new to check out, you want to check out Public Sector Future. It discusses real stories from public sector leaders who have been successful at driving change. You can hear their firsthand experiences, the challenges that their users face, and the lessons that they've learned. Throughout the series, they discuss technology and trends, as well as cultural aspects of change. Host Olivia Neal digs deep into the use of digital approaches to help the public sector work better for those that it serves. And she's the director of the digital transformation in Microsoft's world public sector team. Before Microsoft, Olivia spent her career in the government of Canada and the UK government as well. So she knows the public sector. There's a ton of interesting show topics, including mixed reality, rules of code, digital policing, digital strategy, and digital access. And they have some great guests, like the episode that I listened to, featured Mark Poliphase, who is the professor of computer science at ETH Zurich and the director of science at Microsoft. And in the episode that I listened to, it was about mixed reality. And it was super interesting to see, to hear some of the stuff that Mark was saying about AR on our phones right now and how that's kind of just really a tiny step into the overall future of what mixed reality technology can be because it's really just a small window and you're holding it and it's not in our vision. And it was really intriguing to hear how mixed reality devices could be utilized to help us undertake specific tasks with things like instructions overlaid in front of your eyes and how they've actually been doing this stuff. And there was some stuff being done in hospitals during COVID, I think in the UK, where they were, where doctors were able to instruct 
multiple people at a time by using this device without having to be in a million places at once. Super fascinating to hear about this stuff from the people building these futures. So go and listen to it right now. Just search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts. That's Public Sector Future or click the link in the show notes and go and check it out right now. Our thanks to Public Sector Future for their support of this show and Relay FM. So usually we would say right now in the show, it's time for hashtag ask upgrade, but we have more because there was a report that we just couldn't let go because that's the, that's the laces powering down. They were so ready to go. Mark Gurman released a report kind of detailing the future of Apple's Mac hardware last week. And I wanted to touch on it. We can go through all these things. We can stop where we want to. Um, but there was a lot of interesting detail in here that... I was afraid otherwise we wouldn't talk about for weeks and I didn't want that right. to be the case in case we see some of it before now. Uh, MacBook Pro will debut as soon as early summer. Fingers crossed for WWDC. Mm-hmm. So stuff we know, 14 and 16 inches, MagSafe, HDMI, SD card. But it will feature new Apple Silicon chips. These chips will feature eight high-performance cores and two energy-efficient cores. 16 or 32 graphics cores and up to 64 gigabytes of memory. Now, just to put this into perspective, the current M1, it's four high performance, four energy efficiency. So, you know, so this will be more high performance cores, fewer energy efficiency cores with the ability to now have up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, so... I th- again, it's a mystery of how they're going to brand this, but my guess is that this is the M1X, right? Essentially, that this is not because it's coming as soon as early summer. I love the as soon as it could be five years from now, but it could be this <laughs> summer, early summer, so it'd be midsummer, late summer, fall. Those are all, but as soon as early summer, anyway, late spring, um, no way. A so, so if you think about the A14 core that is in the iPad Air and then the iPhone because they had the weird sequencing thing there. The way I, I generally view how Apple does their, their silicon advancement is they build a new base core every year. And then we're in the A14 year. And the M1 is based on that A14 core. That's that's the That's the chip generation, for lack of a better word, that we're on right now. And so if there's going to be a new Apple silicon chip, this summer, it strikes me that it's more likely that it's based on that A14 core and they've built a new model that's got a different set of characteristics, but it's still based on that kind of fundamental um, system. And so you could see a scenario where M1 is essentially, you know, the A number, the M processors are the A number minus 13. Uh, and they mm. advance together every year. So this is, we're in M1 year. Year one of Apple Silicon is M1. And this would be eight high-performance cores and two energy-efficient cores. Those would still be A14 cores, essentially, or M1 cores, but there are more of them. And so it's M1X. Or they could call it something else, but like, let's call it M1X, at least for now. It's that that idea that it's more of the same. And if that disappoints you, it shouldn't performance of Apple's processors historically has scaled basically with the number of high performance cores. Energy efficient cores are really nice, but obviously if you're measuring peak performance, it all comes out of the high performance cores. Um, This rumored processor would mean that these rumored Macs would be literally twice as fast as the previous M1 Macs. 
which were already pretty fast. So Whoa. that's pretty great. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> and, and then you throw in 16 or 32 <laughs> graphics cores instead of eight. So you're going to double or triple your graphics performance. And now you've got the memory to go up to 64 gigs of, of RAM. So yeah, it's, it's a big step up. Apparently, there's also going to be uh, potentially a new Mac Mini with the same these same chips and uh, four ports on them, which, okay, like, fine. Uh, Mark also details the potential for a new MacBook Air. Now, this Mark labels to be a direct successor to the M1 chips, so let's imagine M2, and it would have the same CPU core count but would run faster. So this is all kind of tying into what you were saying, right, that this would be based on the A15 core, and there would be mm-hmm. the same amount, but they would run quicker because it's the new generation. And apparently they would also look to potentially increase graphics a little bit. And this new MacBook Air will probably be what we were talking about over the last couple of weeks of this new design right. with new colors. And, you know, we can expect this maybe towards the end of the year, maybe, or right. maybe next so year. So that, that's your A15 generation, and it yep. would be the M2, and it would be... Yeah, it would be the same CPU count, as you said, and it will be faster because it's an A15 instead of an A14. It's an M2 instead of an M1, um, but not as fast as the, let's call it M1X. And then, of course, this sets them up to then do another wave of high-end updates next year that are M2X, that are lots of cores of the new hot thing. And they don't have to do it this way, and this may not be how they do it, but Mm -hmm. if you look at it, from this perspective, it's like exactly their playbook for the iPad and the iPhone. And I think that although they can do whatever they want, the most likely scenario is that they're going to look what they did with the iPad and the iPhone and say, yeah, that works. Let's do that. (laughs) And make an M1 and an M1X and then an M2 and an M2X and have the, you know, and have it essentially be kind of consumer and pro of, of chip variants and then that leads to the bigger question, which is, is Apple going to revise their um, computers every year? Maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Now that know. they control the chips, I mean, Maybe. would you just do refresh them every year because you control the chips? You just drop in the new chip and and move along? They could. They could. It'll be interesting to watch that. If there are, if like the Mac Mini is a great example where Mark Gurman says, maybe or maybe not. That I think that's like a great question of like, what is is Apple going to refresh all these models on a regular basis? Are they going to be like, yeah, maybe every two years or every eighteen months or something? We'll see. I, th- I think maybe the difference will be they can if they want to, right? Where maybe they haven't been able to in the recent in recent memory. If they want to just bump the chip every year with no change, they can do that. Sure, they can. And the iPad did go as as was just pointed out in in the member Discord. Uh, you know, App, Apple sometimes goes. You know, the iPad chip only gets updated every couple of years. Well, it's mm-hmm. like that's true. Although now it's the iPad and the Mac, right? So there's a little more weight behind doing it on a regular basis. But yeah, there's nothing that forces Apple to refresh their product line, except when they want to. I just wonder, like, if they get on a cycle where they're rolling out a, a couple of chip variations every year, would they want? to keep the old ones around or would they be would they rather refresh everything because keeping in mind here that most of these updates won't be redesigns of the products it'll be the same product that it looked like before with a different chip inside Mm -hmm. so it's it's not it's still an update it still has cost but it's not quite the same as a a complete rethink and it would make sense that we would get a new macbook air with you know a year after the first one because the current m1 macbook air is just the same macbook air as before 
And if right. they're going to redesign all of the machines potentially by that point, or at least, you know, like we'll have, say, maybe another new iMac at some point, and we'll also have new MacBook Pros, and maybe there's a new Mac Pro. You know, you want to want a new MacBook Air in there. You don't want, the, like, the most popular computer to be the only one that hasn't got a new design. Could be a bit strange. Now, one of the things that actually the main thing I don't understand from this report, or at least the thing that I wouldn't have expected, is a new low-end MacBook Pro, which has the same chip as the MacBook Air. And that's all it says. Now, I expect here this is like a, it looks like the current one, but like how long are they going to keep that around and why? Yeah, that's uh, like, is that not the existing 13-inch MacBook Pro? So would they do like an M2 13-inch MacBook Pro and and keep it around? I mean, they may because... I don't know why. It would make more sense for them not to do it that way. But if the rumors are true that there's going to be a 14-inch MacBook Pro, then they would have 13, 14, 16. But, like, why is it a MacBook Pro if it's basically a MacBook Air? Like, why? How is that a MacBook Pro? I don't understand it. And would that be the, with a touch bar then? Right? I, <laughs> like, what mm. is this computer? Like, I don't... I, I don't understand this one. It is, I think, of everything in the report, the thing that has the least information, and that might be for a reason, but like it was it was just like a really weird addition to me. Another weird thing, uh, larger iMac, new processor, but put on hold for Apple to focus on the 24-inch. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. It is a mysterious bit mm. of the report, and it's unclear whether this is, again, who's the source? What were they working on? Yeah, who was it was really put on, put on hold? hold? Yeah, or did they have to pull some people off in mm-hmm. order to ship the twenty-four? And now they're going back to the other one. But it is a little has a little chilling effect, right? Which is like, oh, maybe that larger iMac isn't coming right. You know, yeah, this but fall. for all we know, that was further along, and they put it yeah. on. You know, and like we don't we don't have true. detail right on that. It's one. true. Maybe they made some decisions about it. I I would say I'd still bet on it being done by this fall. Because I think Apple wants this transition to happen quickly. And now that they've got the 24-inch iMac out there, having that Intel, that big Intel iMac out there is just not like, no, got to get rid of it. Got to get rid of it. And then the new Mac Pro. How about 20 or 40 cores? (laughs) 16 or 32 high-performance cores with 4 or 8 high-efficiency cores, depending on whether you go for the 20 or 40-core option. 64 or 128-core GPU as an option. Uh, On paper being, I guess, two to four times more powerful than the Intel Mac Pro. Smaller physical design, but with a similar look. I can't even fathom this computer, Jason. I, I Mm. I can't imagine what this would be like to use. Like the 40 core version with 128 graphics cores, like I can't even imagine what that could be like. It sounds like a Mac Pro, doesn't it? It sounds like a very much a Mac Pro. This this sounds like more like what I imagine in my mind the Mac Pro of old. You know, like when you would go to the configurator and you'd bump it all the way to the top and it would be like so bananas compared to everything else. Like uh, yeah, I really I I'm super intrigued by this machine. I don't really um, it's just like everything about it, right? Like, what is it going to be like on the inside? What will it keep of the old one? How expandable will it be? Right. Are Apple's GPUs the only GPUs? German still believes that it's actually going to be kind of like a a mini version 
of the existing mm-hmm. tower that they're going to they're going to shrink it down a little bit. But still like the idea of an Apple silicon based Mac that's got expansion cards or internal storage or you know there's there's stuff that the Mac Pro has to deal with beyond just having lots of cores that are kind of part of what having a big tower computer means and what do they have to do because I do think that they're they're committed to building this computer, but like, what do they have to do to rethink how Apple Silicon works? Because they've already had to come from iPhone and iPad to the Mac, and that necessitated changes. And now they're going to have to make more changes in order to handle a sort of Mac Pro kind of architecture. But uh, but what is interesting here is we had a, a thought for a long time, which is like, well, what does a Mac Pro running Apple's ARM processors even look like? Like, what would that even be? And what Mark Gurman is saying is they're going to take their A14 or A15, probably the A15, and they're just going to put 40 A15 cores and uh, uh, 128 GPU cores in this thing and uh, go to town. It's like, okay, well, that's one way to do it, <laughs> right? It's just like just all the cores. Because pro, pro workflows are mostly multi-core enabled, right? Like, I'm trying to imagine... Um, one of my multi-core plugins, audio plugins running on 40 cores. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that would be pretty good. That would be pretty good. Pretty fast. Yeah, so super wild. And there was a good story that, that we didn't, uh, we, maybe we can find it and put it in the show notes. But there's a good story about uh, last week that I read that was basically an ode to the efficiency cores. And the article essentially said the one of the reasons that the M1 Max feel faster is because now that they've got the efficiency cores and the performance cores, what it does is it allows Apple to do a level of uh, of scheduling of tasks that forces your kind of like regular stuff onto the efficiency cores. And so that's always going on, but it doesn't slow down your need for bursts of performance, which go to the performance cores. And the idea that this architecture makes your Mac feel faster because it can prioritize all those different tasks. And I thought that was really smart. And I think that that, that is when I think of a Mac Pro with, with eight efficiency cores and 32 uh, performance cores, I think, okay, like I can see that, right? Where it's like you expect a lot of good Mac Pro performance happening on a baseline and then you want the enormous performance when you when you really need it and so having 4 or 8 efficiency cores it's going to feel like a really fast computer but then when you give it a job it's going to crank up those high performance cores and and spin the fans and it's going to be uh, very impressive Jason and I have realized if we don't do Ask Upgrade today we're probably going to do it for like 2 or 3 weeks because of the next few episodes so let's do a few today I'm going to warm up the lasers Hashtag ask upgrade question. First one from Rajiv. Would you ever consider releasing a podcast episode that supported spatial audio? Okay. Total Party Kill is done in stereo with panning. Uh, Incomparable Radio Theater has done that. I've done stereo podcasts before. We had some stereo effects in the Outgrade episode last year uh, for Summer of Fun. Um, a lot of people listen with one headphone or and they have to turn it to mono because they don't want any effects. Uh any attempts to do stereo panned episodes, uh, people don't, a lot of people don't like it. And I'm not sure you would like it if you heard it. Uh, would we consider it? Maybe, but it would probably be as a joke. <laughs> and we'd probably need to release a version that didn't have it. I think most people just don't, they think that this sounds cool and then they would not want that. But uh, but you never know. You never know what what you might do. But yeah, I mean, mostly it's not appropriate. Oh yeah, there's no way I would record, say, release like a regular episode of Upgrade in special audio. But 
we might if if there was a like a as well like I don't even know how you would do it and really take advantage I, of it right. If, right, if there right. was I mean, some beyond tools, stereo, if we yeah, did like a five point one episode mm-hmm. somehow, then yeah, I would maybe yeah. consider it. If I was then making something specifically to take advantage of the fact that we have that available to us, right? Right. Um, and I really don't like the mixing of left and right personally. Like I've heard it done aggressively, and 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 I don't like it. I no. made that mistake way back in the day. It no. just doesn't work. The, the truth is that ninety, I, I would say ninety eight percent of your listening audience doesn't want it and wouldn't notice it and is not interested in it. So yeah. So Aaron asks: After a year of iOS fourteen being around, do you find that you're hiding most apps from the home screen, or have you kept most of them in folders on the home screen? So using App Library and that kind of stuff. I only have one page that's got apps on it, and so I have gone for no folders, and everything beyond page one is in App Library. Exactly the same. I have an I have an extra widget page, but there's no other app icons on it. Right, everything's same. gone now. I'm either searching for it or app library. And I look forward to doing that on my iPad. <laughs> Me too. Hopefully. Oh my god. Just I have all these folders that just like these bins. <laughs> just put apps in. Like I don't even. I never look in there. I don't know. Like I have just one folder called Tools, and it's like eight pages. And it's like I everything just gets put in there. I don't know what it's in there. And Alex asks, having seen assistive touch on the Apple Watch, which we were talking about earlier, used to navigate the screen with hand and wrist movements, what do you think the chances are that the watch becomes an input or control method for future AR devices? I love this question. I did not consider this. This is very intriguing to me. Like, Apple's getting good at sensing hand movements. This could be really interesting for when you're trying to control computer devices that are in your eyes. Yeah, I, I don't know if the Apple Watch actually becomes the input because you generally, you're also then saying you only have one arm that is doing input mm-hmm. and the other one has nothing because you're not wearing a, a watch on it. But I could see this as being a spinoff technology of them trying to do Understanding hand tracking senses. and stuff. Yeah. yeah, like that you would yeah. put, say, two little wristbands on and then that's it, right? And Could be. You know, and that could be how you could control the mixed reality device at home or something like that. You know, it could start sensing how you would type on a magical invisible keyboard, like all that kind of stuff. Right. Very interesting technology if they can then harness it to do other stuff. But in its current, like of just helping people who need additional assistance with the devices is also an amazing thing. All right, we'll be back next week with the draft for WWDC yeah, as we are fast approaching. Uh, if you would like to listen to longer episodes of Upgrade with no ads, you can go to getupgradeplus.com and sign up. Thank you so much to every one of you that does. If you want to find Jason online, you can go to sixcolors.com and he is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much to Memberful, Pingdom, and Public Sector Future from Microsoft for the support of this episode. And thank you for listening. Until next time, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, everybody. 